So, uh, if you would, I'm going to ask you to, to turn with me to uh, the second to last page, where, just before the doxology, where it has the affirmation of faith. And we're going to read this question. I'm going to read this question and I ask you to recite the answer. This is from Westminster Confession of Faith, number 97, regarding the law. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, yet besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how they are bound to Christ for fulfilling it. First instead, and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness, and to express the same in their greater care, to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. Very good job, you did better than I did in reading it. So, in light of that, um, we're going to look at Psalm 19. But before we do, I'm going to read a passage from. Exodus 19, and then we'll look at verses 7 through 14 in Psalm 19. So we've been going through the book of Exodus. We've gone through the law, but what preceded the law? What was the cause of the giving of the law? Well, God tells us in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, and we tend to forget this kind of stuff. So reminding me as well as you why God gave the law. You yourselves have seen, God says, what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then he goes on and gives the law to them. Now let's look at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. I mean, 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. They're sweeter than also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In this passage, you tell us that it's the thing that gives us life. 
And so, God, I pray that through your spirit, because of Jesus, she would give us life as we engage with your word, even now, all for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. So today we're going to be looking at why the commands. Why should we take heed to the commands of God? Last week we looked at the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, and ask the question, are you satisfied? This week we'll be looking at the question about where are you seeking to find life? Don't you think about it for a little while. Where are you seeking to find life? Today, yesterday, where are you hoping to find life in the coming week? Maybe it's in your work. Maybe it's in relationships that you have. Maybe it's in um, escaping, so Netflix or uh, gaming or such. Maybe it's in food. Bluebell ice cream kind of thing. Where are you seeking to find life? Because wherever you're seeking to find life, it is forming you to have certain hungers and thirsts that's affecting what you pursue with your life. It's shaping your desires, your goals, your perspective about what is normal. But when we think about where we find life, the law is usually not where we look, right? As a matter of fact, most of us think of the law in terms of, uh, it's kind of like eating broccoli or cauliflower when our parents made us. You do it because it's good, not because it's, you do it because it's right, not because it's good. Um, George Bush, when he was president, he said this about his opinion of broccoli. I wish I could do a George Bush accent, but I'm not going to even try. My mother made me eat broccoli when I was growing up. Now that I'm president of the United States, I don't have to eat it. In many ways, we can feel the same way about the law. We know that it's the right thing to do. God tells us to do it. But is it good? Is it life-giving? Most of us don't think of such. As a matter of fact, we in our culture, generally hate rules. Uh, This is true of me growing up, but uh, this is even more true now. We're a society that wants to be in control of our lives and to not have anybody tell us what to do. And yet, here, God in His Word says some crazy things about His Word, and in particular about His law. He says, uh, the passage we just read goes on and on about how wonderful the word of God and his commands are. And in verse 11, it even says this, in keeping them, there's great reward. In keeping the law of God, there's great reward. What is that reward? So if you're new to our church today, or you are uh, unbelieving and just kind of checking out uh, what's what are these Christians doing? What are they talking about? 
Um, often I like to talk to you directly, but this passage in this sermon is mostly directed towards those who are inside the faith. However, it says some pretty amazing things that I think you might want to listen to and to be invited into. However, it's primarily a message to believers. The law was primarily given to God's people. As a matter of fact, there are three uses of law. We, that catechism question that's kind of uh, hard to read because it's uh, framed in Old English sort of ways. It's basically saying this, that there are three uses of the law. Uh, this is kind of a theological point, but uh, the first use is civil law. So it's to guide society. So God gave the law to guide the uh, society of the Israelites in the promised land. Um, the scriptures also talk about the law in terms of its uh, pedagogical use. It's in turn to lead us to Jesus. It's designed to expose how deeply screwed up we are so that we'll run to Jesus. Okay, and, um, and in this, in this uh, verse 11, it's not saying in keeping God's commands there's great reward in the sense of uh, if you do these things, you'll get to go to heaven or you'll get to experience grace. It's not saying that. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say in keeping, for keeping them there's great reward. It says in keeping them there's great reward. As a matter of fact, that word reward in Hebrew, according to commentator Dalich, means consequence. There's great consequences for you if you keep the law of God. So what are those consequences? How can the commands be good? And I'm going to read a statement, and this is kind of going to guide a lot of what I say. Um, it's, it's really, if you get this statement, it's going to guide you on how to understand this passage. But here it is. This is the whole thrust of this passage. This is what I hope to accomplish in this message. Because we're blind to our own issues... And because our issues will work to destroy our lives and all those around us, and because we've been made and saved to live for the Lord, then the law is sweet because it in the hands of the Lord works to train us to health and holiness, helping us to see our stuff and through the Spirit's work own our stuff and helping us to be a blessing to those around us and helping us to enjoy and glorify God. So... This passage shows us three things about ourselves. The problem, and it, this, this psalm ends with the problem. So this is going to be an unconventional way to start at the end and, and move to the beginning. But this passage shows us the problem, verses 12 through 14. It says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Part of the problem with us is that we can't see what we can't see. We don't know what we don't know. That we have all these blind spots. Uh, Joe, this morning in Sunday school, talked about cultural blind spots. We have both cultural and personal blind spots where we can't see our sin and how screwed up we are. And the, part of the thing that the law does is it exposes us. The psalmist says here, Who can discern his errors? We're not very good about self-analysis, self-diagnosis, 
seeing what's wrong with us. Now, if you ask those around you, what's wrong with you? You can try that and go home today and do that. Do it at work. If they're honest with you, they'll be able to tell you what's wrong with you. Because our blind spots create problems for everybody. Honestly, the worst part about being the head of an organization is that the longer you're there, you start realizing that almost all the problems in the organization are related to your faults. But you didn't even know you had them until you see the effects of them. And so it's kind of hard and exposing. But it would be much better if, if I'd figured that out before I was leading a school. Why? Because my school wouldn't be as screwed up because of my faults as it is. Okay, Providence is an amazing place. It has a lot of faults too. But the law is intended to show us our faults before they create real damage to us and to others. And that's part of the beauty of it, but that's part of the problem of it. That's the problem. We're made to live for the glory of God. God, we read from Exodus 19 verses 4 through 6, God called us out along with the Israelites to be his people, to be a kingdom of priests, to represent him to this world. And yet we fail to do so largely not because of things we're doing in utter rebellion, although there may be some of of you who are doing that, but largely it's because of things we don't even see, our hidden faults, habits that we've developed over years. Keep me back also from presumptuous sins, sins that I'm doing that I've been maybe doing for my whole life, but I think it's not that big a deal. But yet it's rebellion against God. It's hurtful to others. Uh, One of the things that, that I would, some of the presumptuous sins that we struggle with in here, pornography. Among men, pornography is rampant. Okay, we'd be fooling ourselves to think that most of us in this room who are men aren't struggling with it at some level. Used to be utterly addicted to it. I'm now free of it. But I know what it is to be addicted to pornography. And yet, we find ourselves continuing, continuing, continuing sins like that. For women, okay, not that, not that every male and female fill into a nice category. Gossip tends to be one that we tend to struggle with. And uh, Demiron did a great job last week of unpacking some of that. We share prayer requests. <laughs> Not so much because we're really concerned about people, just because we want to share the juice. And say, oh my goodness, can you believe this person did this? Uh, we have all sorts of presumptuous sins. And the problem with presumptuous sins is, is not just that we've broken a rule. It's that every time we sin, we break the heart of God. And every time we sin... Usually, we hurt those around us, and especially the witness that we have in this world. And so, and yet, God, uh, the psalmist continues and, and asks, I want to be blameless, he says in verse 13. An innocent of great transgression. Now, what he's saying there is not, th- is not this. I want to like get to a point where I have no longer have sin. That's not what he's saying. I mean, that's what we hear sometimes, but that's not really what he's saying. What's he saying there? 
He's saying, I want to be so mature. I want to grow in you so much that I don't bring you shame. I want to grow in you so much that I don't create major damage. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want my life to be an instrument of worship. And in that, I need your help, God. And so he shows us the problem that we're blind to our own faults. We have presumptuous sins. And yet we have this calling to exalt God that we're failing in. What's going to help us to do that? And the solution is the law. And so God gives us his word and his law to guide us. Now, how does the law help us in this problem? Well, the first thing it does is it exposes us. So like I said, I don't tend to change until I see my problems. Once I see my problems, I tend to realize, hey, I'm creating major issues. I generally want to be a blessing to those around me. How can I grow? And the law is really good at exposing us. And as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, they've exposed us in pretty deep ways. And I'm not going to unpack this because we've spent 10 weeks unpacking this part. But as we engage with the law, it shows us that we are the problem. And here's the problem with that, that no amount of effort or just gumption will get you to where you want to be. So how is the law going to be helpful to you? And and here's the real solution. The law is not helpful in and of itself. Just a bunch of rules isn't going to get you to where you need to be. The real solution is the law in the hands of Jesus and the Spirit. When you know God, when you have Him helping you through His Spirit, the law becomes a really useful tool. Otherwise, it can be exasperating. So what does the law become in the hands of Jesus? Well, the first thing it becomes is it becomes a training tool. It becomes Jesus' way of training us to love Him and to live for Him. We, we see that in this passage. Um, if you go to... I'm going to back it up a little bit. But this de- re- deeply relates to Romans 12, 1 and 2. What's going on in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Romans, we, we, most of us, many of us are familiar with the book of Romans, but Romans is a book about the problem of humanity and the good news of God's rescue and what we're doing in response. So chapter 3 says, you're terrible, there's nothing you can do to save yourselves, you're in real trouble before God because you've rebelled against the God of the universe. But then Romans 5 through 8 says, but here's the good news. What you could never do on your own, Jesus did for you. Jesus died for you to forgive you and to reconcile you with God. (laughs) What kind of person does that? It's really good news. 
But then it goes on in, in Romans 12 and it says, in light of the good news that God's determined to rescue you, completely contrary to everything you and I deserve, what are we to do with that? It says this, Therefore, in, in view of the mercies of God or by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may test and approve what is good, perfect in his intent. God's desire for us is that we'd offer ourselves. And the language of Psalm 19 is that that speaks to offering. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What does it mean for the law of the Lord to revive the soul? As we seek to live for the Lord, we often recognize we don't have anything to give Him. That's a normal reality. And yet the law exposes us, pushing us to rest in Jesus more deeply, to trust in Him more deeply, but it also trains us as to this is the sort of thing that pleases the Lord. The testament of the Lord is, Lord is sure, making wise and simple. What does it mean to make wise the simple. Well, in order to understand that, we've got to understand kind of uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament. The simple is not just someone who, like, uh, doesn't have much or is not complicated. That's what it means in English, right? The simple means this, someone who doesn't have a clue. And wise doesn't mean it's going to give us a lot of knowledge or information, it means it's going to train us on how to live, give us godliness. So making godly those who are foolish, as it were. The precepts of the Lord are, are right, rejoice in the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, again, uh, offering language, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. All this is true when you've got the law in context of relationship with God. Relationship with God is key. It's, it precedes it all. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the giving of the, the Ten Commandments, what did God say? I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt. Therefore, relationship precedes obedience. But relationship is also that which fuels obedience. This, this happens in everyday life as well. The way we start to obey is that we want to obey because we fall in love with God. You'll never want to obey the commands, in a, at least in a healthy way, unless you grow to deeply love the Lord. So my question for you is, do you deeply love the Lord? Is that what's driving your obedience? It, it, there's a lot of the church, maybe even some of this church, some of you, who basically says, look, I can't really focus on learn, loving the Lord stuff, but I, I got to just follow the rules and that's, I'm going to try to do the best I can following the rules. I can guarantee you if that's your approach to the Christian life, you're not going to end up obeying for a sustained sort of way in a beautiful way, in a life-giving way. 
Either the laws will become oppressive to you, hence our society, our society's flinging them off, thinks it's just rules without relationship. Or you'll become defeated in failing so miserably. No, the, the only way that you'll learn to obey the law in a healthy way is that you grow to love the Lord deeply. But you'll never grow to love the, to love the Lord deeply unless you grasp how crazy His love is for you. That's the context for the commands. When you are like nothing, God said to them in Deuteronomy 9, I chose you to be my own people. When, you, when I knew you were hard-hearted, I knew you were. I set my love on you in a way that I'm not going to let you go. I sent my angels to my messengers, my workers, to do the work to deliver you from Egypt. And if that was true of God's people in Exodus, how much more true is it of us? What did God do for us? He did not just send his angels to come and do miracles to save us from oppressive armies, which is amazing and beautiful. He sent his own son, Jesus. Jesus, the son, came willingly, gladly on the father's behest. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. But the the craziest thing is that at the end of his life, he died the death that we deserve to die. And it wasn't just an accident. The scriptures tell us that God had designed it. He had foreordained it. He had predestined that Jesus would die at the hands of Judah. He sent Jesus to die. But not just to die, but to die for us. And the more we grasp that reality, how crazy a love it is that you have for me, that you'd send your own son for us, that how it should move us to be wonder and love and awe. Romans 8 tells us that if, if God would not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, freely give us everything else we need for life and godliness, as it were? And so grasping the love of God for you is key to keeping commands. If you want the commands to be life-giving for you, you've got to start at relationship. That's where the psalmist is. That's why at the last verse... He's talking about, you're my rock and my redeemer. I want to offer you everything. But when you get how greatly he loves you, you'll begin to burn in love for him and have a deep desire to live in a way that pleases him. Romans 12, 1 and 2 sort of thing. You know, uh, when I was growing up, I am a typical Gen X guy. I do not like rules. Uh, I do not find pleasure in just following rules apart from relationship. And my dad would, I mowed yards to make a living, and my dad would uh, make me mow the yard. How, how cruel and oppressive a dad. Everybody else would pay me, and my dad would not pay me. Sad me, man. I didn't really view him like that, but I, I did view it as, as something like I had to do, but I didn't want to do. It was right, but it was not good. I wasn't getting paid for it. But something happened when I turned 18. I went off to college, and when I got back, the first thing I was thinking about was, 
hey, I really want to mow the, da- my, the yard for my dad so that he didn't have to. My derelict little brother would never do it for him. He was kind of like I was, didn't really want to. And so I, I, I took pleasure in serving my dad from 18 through 22. And I, every time I'd go home, I'd try to figure out what can I do to help my parents. What changed from fi- the 15-year-old Howard to the 18-year-old Howard? Some of it's maturity, but, but really a lot of, large part of it was that I recognized how deeply my dad loved me at 18 that I couldn't see at 15. And I wanted to love him back, and that meant that chores were no longer a chore. There's an incredible line from a song. Uh, uh, it says this, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. If you want to understand this, this psalm, you've got to understand that. To see the law in Christ fulfilled, to hear his parting voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. That's at the heart of this command. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just about training, about Jesus saying, I want you to be beautiful for me, and I'm going to train you through these commands on how to do that. This week I read in preparation Psalm 119. It's a very long psalm. As a matter of fact, uh, Rachel, when she heard that I was going to do Psalm 19, she's like, are you going to read the whole thing? I was like, yeah. It's like, it's not one, Psalm 119. Psalm 19. Oh, okay, gotcha. 176 verses. That would have taken up most of the time. But I, I read through that this week, and uh, and as I read through it several times, I was just utterly convicted. I was convicted, the conviction that I had was similar, uh, there's a a song we sing in our church frequently, it's called Flourishing, it's it's kind of a compilation of several passages from 119, and it says, uh, keep my eyes from worthless things. Yeah, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Turn my life according to your ways. Take away disgrace. It leads to flourishing. Um, when I read the Psalm 119, I was like, oh my goodness. Why am I like so captivated with worthless things? Just to be vulnerable with you, like when the summer comes around, I want to just veg. And my job doesn't kind of allow me to do that very deeply. So I do that at night. Everybody else will go to bed and I'll be like, I got to get some escape. And so what I've been doing is playing Catan on the phone. It's ridiculous. Catan is an awesome game. If you've never played before, I'd love to beat you in it. (laughs) But here's the thing. I can't just play one game. I play and then I win. And so I start feeling like, man, I can really... I love this game. So I play again and I win and then I lose. And I'm like, I got to play at least one more game to win. And then I lose like five in a row. And I'm like, I got to redeem myself. It's so stupid. And they, they have a point scale. Keeps me in the game. It's like a gambler. Except I'm not really winning money. I'm just chasing after worthless points. And it's, it, at some level, it's just really funny. But at some level, it's really sad, honestly. If you play games, I don't care. It doesn't, that's not... 
it's not important to me, okay? It's, it's not this great evil. But wasting your life is a great evil. What, it, what does playing the game to endless hours do? It makes me really tired and grumpy with my family. They can testify to these things. It's sad. It makes me where I feel like I have to win in all of life. So I become super competitive. And, and the biggest downside is that I, I end up neglecting God's word at a pretty deep level, in ter- especially in terms of meditating on his word, because I'm meditating on how can I win in Catan. It's so dumb. But that sort of thing is the thing that we do. And as I was reading the, the Psalms, it was convicting me. And hopefully changing me. Not because I have to, but because I want to please God, because he loves me. Because he, not, not only because I want to please him, it's because that's foolish, Howard. Why waste your life? You only have one life to live. It's not wrong to watch a movie every now and then or play a game every now and then, but like, what are you doing with your life? It's training me in bad ways. And God's calling me to be trained in better ways, just like he's calling you to be trained in better ways. So the law in the hands of Jesus becomes a means of training, but it also becomes a means of joy. This is truly remarkable. I remember in college reading the Bible dutifully, gladly, as it were, but thinking that was like my responsibility to do it. And then I, I, I read some things from David in Psalm 19, Psalm 119 especially, that shocked me. He says this, the law in the hands of Jesus and the Spirit becomes joy. These things, the Word of God and the commands of God are more to be desired than gold. What? More to be desired than gold, than much fine gold. They're sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. If I told you that something was better than blue ball ice cream, better than riches, even better than tons of money, what would you think I was talking about? Imagine we're not in church, okay? Imagine we're in this other setting. What would you think I'm talking about? Maybe a new car? A luxurious vacation? God says, it's better than that. What is it? My word. My ways. Learning to engage in relationship with me. The psalm we just sang, Psalm 16, says this. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You and I are chasing after the world to see what it can give us. I just want one little ounce of satisfaction that I am somebody by winning Catan. I just got to fill my stomach or my pursuits in one other way to give me some kind of satisfaction. And yet I still feel like I'm nobody. I still feel unsatisfied. God's coming and saying, hey, here, I'm going to give you real life in me. That's really what the table's about, and we're going to get to celebrate that in a little while. So it leads to joy, and thirdly, it leads to flourishing. 
Psalm 1 is, is the basis for all the psalms. And it, it starts out by saying, uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law or instruction of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And then the rest of the psalm is about him flourishing. He's like a tree planted by streams of water who always yields its fruit its season. The wicked aren't so. They're like chaff. Their wind blows away. They're not going to stand the judgment. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. They're going to flourish forever. Psalm 19 says it by this. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. There is great consequence. There is great flourishing. The law of God has been given to us in context of relationship with Him to cause us to flourish. To flourish personally and corporately. How does it help us to flourish personally? It gives us right relationship with the Lord. It gives us right relationship with others. It helps us to grow in maturity so that we flourish in those relationships especially. I can just say for me over the last 20 years, the Word of God has been the primary instrument that God's used to transform who I am in a way that's been life-giving to my family. I have not arrived, not by any means. I've just confessed some of my sins to you. But I'm not the man I used to be. And the reason for that is that the Word of God has given me life. It's caused me to flourish. I'm a much less selfish, more life-giving person now than I was 20 years ago in pretty remarkable ways. And it's because of the Word of God, the law of God. But it also is key for us corporately. So one of the things Joe said this morning, uh, Joe was talking to us this morning about uh, ministry to Muslims. And he told a story about going over to Saudi Arabia. And while in Saudi Arabia, uh, he and some friends went and met some Saudi uh, young men. And the Saudi young men took them in and took them on a, a, a desert excursion uh, and fed them and warmly welcomed them for, for several days. Now, if, just to be honest, if they invited me to go to the desert, I would be thinking to myself, oh my goodness, are they taking me there to kill me? <clears throat> that's, that's like my small-minded uh, reality as, as a sheltered American. But here, here's the point. How did that make Joe feel when, when these Muslim guys invited him in? What kind of picture does it give of Islam, of Allah? Really compelling. Now imagine with me, as, as Joe kind of alluded to, what happens if those same guys come to America? What's their experience of the church? They never get invited to anybody's home. People are kind of selfish, Christians maybe especially. They complain about politics all the time. They complain about how unjustly treated they are. They'd be a little bit scared about it if you take them on a trip, probably too. But they want to be invited in. And here's the point of it. Because we haven't been engaging with the commands of God and with Psalm 19 kind of realities, we become a very poor witness for God. 
No kidding. When unbelievers think about the church, what do they think? It's a bunch of people who use religion for political ends. That's the primary thing they're thinking today. They're not very nice. They scream at people all the time. I'm not saying that that happens all the time. I'm not saying you're screaming at people. But what are you... What does the church, what does the unbelievers in Shreveport say about the church? Well, they seem to like want to protest the abortion clinic, which is a good thing, by the way, all for that. But they're not very friendly and they don't seem to like want to invite us in or tell us about Jesus. They talk about sports and weather. That's about all I hear them talk about. I mean, some of them are nice, some are mean. They just don't seem to care about other people very deeply. That's a problem. Why is that such a problem? Because we've been kind of thinking that Jesus gave us life to live life on our own when we've been made to be his representatives. That's the whole reason he came to the people in Exodus. That's that's the whole reason Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for you so that we would be a kingdom of priests, his representatives in Shreveport and beyond, to be beautiful for him. We become an interpretive guide as a body of folks for what God is like and what he's doing, his character and his mission. That's what the commandments are fundamentally about. God has called us out. He's graciously loved us, profoundly so. But there's an end, purpose, that we would be beautiful witnesses of what he is like. We, we sing this every, at the end of every worship service. It's beautiful. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Why? We want you to bless us, God. Why? So that we can make your name known in the whole world. So that all the people might praise you, oh God. All the people might praise you. When we're seeing that, we're not just seeing we want people to praise you, God. We're saying you blessed us so that we might go show how beautiful you are. So that because of us and how we're living, because of representing your character and your mission... People might praise you. That's exactly what Jesus said, Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. What do people do with lights? They do not put it under a bushel so it can be hidden. So let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. God's not saying, hey, when you get enough good works, I'm not going to let you in. He's saying, no, I love you through Jesus. You're already accepted. Don't worry about works in that respect. But you're now called to go live for me. And the commands show you what sort of life I want to live. What would happen if the church was not marked by adultery? Just to pick an odd one. If we as men and women didn't think about other people, but just thought about our spouse and loved them well, what would happen to our culture? Be transformed. What's the reality? Divorce looks the same outside the church as it is inside the church as it does outside virtually. Why? Because we thought that the commands were just like good suggestions. No, they're life-giving. They're critical if you want to embrace the calling that he's given you. So in closing, 
If you're an unbeliever here, David experienced something that you don't want to miss out on. Something that's better than all the riches David could find. He was a very rich guy. Better than fine food, and he experienced the finest. He was king. He would urge you to come and find out what this Jesus is like, what God's like, what relationship with him is like. But if you're a believer, God intends to capture you with his word and his ways. It's not optional. As a matter of fact, if you think it's optional, it may be because you don't love him, because you've not known how deeply he loves you. The reason we want to obey is because we love him. Do you love him? If you love me, obey my commands. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. It speaks to us in really profound ways. God, I have stumbled all over the place, but I pray that your spirit would use your word in these friends of my life, that you would use your word in my life in order to transform us to be beautiful for you, that we would not see that relationship with you is an optional reality, that instead we would see as the primary calling in our lives and we would take your word and your ways as the thing that guides us. Give us life in yourself. Give us life in your ways. All for Christ's sake. Amen.